You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is lecture number nine on the theology of the Old Testament. I'm Father Kenneth Baker, the editor of the Homiletic and Pastoral Review. In today's lecture, we're going to continue now with the books of prophecy. In the last lecture, we covered basically what we mean by a prophet and Isaiah and Jeremiah. In this lecture, I want to say something about three books in the Old Testament the book of Lamentation, the book of Baruch, and then the book of Ezekiel. So we're going to deal with those three in this particular lecture. Some people list the number of books in the Old Testament as 45. And when they do that, they're counting Lamentation as part of the prophecy of Jeremiah because it's attributed to Jeremiah. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but it's certainly attributed to him. It may be written by him. Whereas if we count Lamentations as a separate book, then we end up with 46 books in the Old Testament. This prophecy then comes right after Jeremiah, and it is a lament. It's called the Book of Lamentation. There are five chapters, and these are laments in the midst of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians had utterly destroyed the city and destroyed the temple. Our Lord, in his time, had talked about there not being a stone left upon a stone. The uh, Romans did the same thing in the year 70, but in the year 587, that's what the Babylonians did to the city of Jerusalem. So the picture here of the Book of Lamentation is the prophet standing in the midst of all this desolation and speaking about how this came about and lamenting of what God had done to them and the fact that they had failed to keep his covenant, that they had sinned against him, and this is the consequence of their sins. So the book offers a sustained lament over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and especially the temple where God was worshipped. Because now there's no more temple, there's no more sacrifice worship, God is not worshipped as he should be according to the law of Moses. The destruction does not prove that the Lord Yahweh was too weak to stop it. That's not the point. Rather, it was the Lord himself who brought this disaster on the people because of their sins. But it's not an expression of despair. There's no despair in these laments. Because of the Lord's promise to Moses and David, the psalmist is certain that if Israel repents, confesses her guilt, and trusts in the Lord, she can count on his mercy and forgiveness. There will be a time of restoration. So these five laments in these five chapters end on a note of hope for the future because God is going to be faithful to his promises that there would always be a successor of David and somebody on his throne. What's characteristic of these psalms, of the first four, is that they are acrostic psalms. I explained that in one of the other lectures. Acrostic means that each of the verses in the poem begins with 
the letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and they follow in sequence, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, for 22 letters. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so you have 22 verses in each of these laments, the first four of them. The last one is a little bit different. And here's the general movement of each one of these psalms. There are two speakers, the psalmist and Zion herself, that is, the city of Jerusalem. They lament the destruction of Jerusalem. The psalmist and Zion describe the day of the Lord that has happened. And in the third psalm, the individual laments and expresses his hope for deliverance in the future. And then there's a communal lament in number four, and in number five, the community humbly appeals to the Lord from its present pitiable state. They express contrition for what's happened, ask for forgiveness and restoration. So the center of it is the personal, individual lament in Psalm number three, and that's chapter three. There are only five chapters in this book of Lamentations. Now, the book of Lamentations shows some affinity to the theology of the Deuteronomist, which we explained many times, to Jeremiah, and also to Second Isaiah. It's a prayer book for the people who survived the ravages of war. And also, these psalms are lyrics which are intended for singing. And here we find a direct connection between sin and suffering. Because they sin, therefore they suffer. But God punishes them not to destroy them, but to purify them, to bring them to repentance and a change of heart. The Lord is described as compassionate and merciful, and he will restore his favor to his people once they have repented and had a change of heart. So there's kind of an undercurrent of hope in the midst of all this lamentation. The psalmist refers to Jerusalem in affectionate terms as daughter Zion in 1.6 and daughter Jerusalem in chapter 2.15. This is a tender, affectionate title for the city borrowed from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. Now in the New Testament, there's no explicit reference to the book of Lamentations, but for centuries now, Christians and Catholics have been in the habit of praying the Psalms of Lamentation during Holy Week in a special service that's on Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night during Holy Week, and it's called Tenebrae, which means darkness. And they have a series of candles, and these, after each psalm is sung, the candle is extinguished. This is a special kind of a liturgical ceremony that many Catholics had ever seen, but it's done in monasteries for the most part, and some parishes, I assume, do have that. So that's the Book of Lamentation. It's probably written by Jeremiah. It's very much like the prophecy of Jeremiah, and it's closely associated with him, probably written right after the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, when the ruins were still smoldering, still smoking there in Jerusalem after it had been destroyed. So that's the Book of Lamentation. The next book in the Old Testament is the Book of Baruch. Now, there are seven books in the Old Testament that are said to be deuterocanonical. They're not recognized in the Protestant Bible, or if they're in the Bible, they're put at the end of the book. They're not put in the regular place where they are in the Catholic Bible. The Catholic Church recognizes these seven books as God's Word and as canonical, and Baruch is one of them. The other ones are 
the recent wisdom books that we took up, Wisdom, Sirach, 1 and 2 Maccabees, Tobit, and Judith, and Baruch. Those seven books, they're said to be deuterocanonical. Also, there are a few chapters at the end of the prophecy of Daniel about Susanna and the wicked old men and Nabel and the dragon and the prayer of Manasseh. There are a few other chapters in the Bible that are not considered canonical by the Protestants or by the Jews, but they are considered canonical in the Catholic Church. This book of Baruch is one of them. Baruch was a secretary to Jeremiah. He did translations for him and he took down dictation from him of various oracles that he gave and then he presented them to the king as coming from the prophet Jeremiah. We don't know exactly you know, when this particular book was written. Many scholars think that it was written in the second century and it's attributed to Baruch who was a close associate of Jeremiah because of certain aspects in this that refer to the time of the Maccabean revolt. And that took place between 180 and 134 in the second century. So many uh, scholars give a date of this book of 125 before Christ, but they attribute it to, as I said, Baruch. The book helps us to understand the inner spiritual life of the Jews of the Diaspora. The Jews of the Diaspora are those that are spread all over the Near East after the destruction of Jerusalem. Many of them were down in Egypt, for example. Some were over in Rome, some were in Greece, but especially those that were in Babylon and in Egypt. There's no one theme in the book of Baruch, but it does give expression to the following beliefs and sentiments. Loyalty to and love for Jerusalem and the temple. There's a preoccupation again in this book with Jerusalem and the temple. Obedience to the law of Moses and to the distant authority of Jerusalem. Emphasis on prayer, hope for the future, and determined resistance to pagan influences of idolatry. So in that sense, it's kind of a book of resistance of those who live in the diaspora. They live in a Greek Hellenized culture, which in many ways is hostile to their Jewish faith. So now after a brief introduction, which names Baruch and locates him in Babylon, there's a lengthy prayer which contains a confession of national guilt, a plea for forgiveness, and a hope for the restoration of Israel in accordance with God's promises in the past. Here we have this theme of sin that runs all the way through the Bible. There's a recognition of that, that the punishment that they received the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was a result of their sin, their violation of the covenant made by Moses with the Lord. And therefore they were punished, again, as I say, not to be destroyed, but to purify them, to bring them to a conversion and change of heart. The heart of the prophecy is found in the poem which praises wisdom as a unique gift which the Lord has bestowed on his people Israel. This we find right in the middle of Baruch, from chapter 3, verse 9, to chapter 4, verse 4. And this is followed then by a psalm in the end of the fourth and the fifth chapter in which a personified Jerusalem addresses her children. She reminds them of their sins and encourages them with the hope of the messianic blessings of the future. Finally, at the conclusion of the prophecy of Baruch, there is the letter of Jeremiah addressed to the exiles in Babylon. 
This letter, the sixth chapter, is a fierce polemic against idol worship, which we find so often in the Bible, even in the Psalms, that ridiculing these idols of the pagans, saying that they have eyes but they can't see, they have ears but they can't hear, they have tongues but they can't speak, they have feet but they can't walk, they have hands, they can't move them and so forth because they're just made out of wood or gold or silver. They're human products. Now the purpose of the scribal editor of Baruch is to call his people to repentance, conversion, and faith. So here again, we run into this Deuteronomic theology, which we've run into again and again, which it means sin, punishment, repentance, prayer, and restoration of God's favor. So that's a theological theme that runs through the book of Baruch. And in the center of the book, we have this beautiful poem in praise of wisdom, which is the center of the book. So in a certain sense, Baruch is not just a prophecy, but it's also a book of wisdom. This wisdom is unfathomable for man. It is not the intellectual speculation of philosophers, but it's actually, again, identified with the law of Moses, as we saw in the book of Ecclesiasticus. And that law of Moses is found in the Pentateuch, that is, in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy. Other nations come and go. They perish for a lack of real wisdom. But Israel lives on by conforming herself to the wisdom of the law of Moses, basically the Ten Commandments. And that's true even today, that the people of the book, the Israelites, the strict Jews of the book, are those who continue the tradition of Moses and the covenant down to the present time. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, therefore they don't recognize the church, but they have the beginnings of faith because they have the tradition from Moses going back to the time of Mount Sinai. So that's the very short book of Baruch, which comes after Lamentations and just before Ezekiel. Ezekiel is followed then by Daniel, and then after Daniel we have the 12 minor prophets, and that concludes the Old Testament. So for the last part of this lecture, I want to say something about the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is noted for the wild imagery that he has in his prophecy. He has tremendous visions, and he does many symbolic things. The 48 chapters in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was active between the years 593 and 571. So just before the fall of Jerusalem and after the fall of Jerusalem, then he went into exile with the others that were sent into the diaspora. The book was given the final form in which we now have it, probably by the scribes during the time of captivity around 550 before Christ. So the complete text as we now have it would come from that time. Now the prophet Ezekiel is profoundly aware of the majesty and the transcendence of Almighty God. He emphasizes the glory of the Lord, His holiness and His otherness. He's preoccupied with the temple and its liturgy, and he makes a sharp distinction between the sacred and the profane, as many people do today. The main theme of the book of Ezekiel is the need for inner conversion on the part of each person. Something like the second part of Jeremiah, of a new covenant 
and a conversion of heart. That's also a dominant idea in Ezekiel. Men must attain a new heart and a new spirit, he says in chapter 18, 31, in order to be acceptable to God. And he goes so far as to say that God himself will bestow a new heart and a new spirit on his people. That's in 1119 and chapter 36, verse 26. Now the first three chapters of this marvelous prophecy of Ezekiel describe his calling to be a prophet. In the process, he offers a powerful and graphic description of Almighty God. The body of the book is easily and clearly divided into four parts. First, after his call to be a prophet, each one of the prophets received a special call from God. He's chosen by God for that. Chapters 4 to 24 contain prophecies or threats and reproaches directed against Jerusalem and Judah for their sins. Most of the prophets do that. They have threats against Israel and Judah and Jerusalem for their sins, calling them to repentance. That's one of the things the prophets do, is to speak God's word, call men to repentance for their sins. Chapters 25 and 30 to 32 contain the oracles against the surrounding pagan nations, a feature common to the other major prophets. The major prophets all denounce the surrounding peoples, the Moabites, Edom, the Philistines, the name of the various towns, Tyre, Sidon, Babylon, Assyria, that they denounce them for their injustice and their wickedness and their evil intentions and the way they treat others and the persecution of them. The prophets threaten them with destruction. So we find that here in Ezekiel. Then uh, chapters 33 to 39 offer comfort and a promise of a better future to the Israelites during the siege of Jerusalem and afterwards. Ezekiel was present during the siege. He survived it. He saw through the revelation of God that Jerusalem was going to fall. But he has words of comfort and promise that God's going to restore them through this remnant, which we spoke about before, that a certain group will be saved, and from them God's promises to Israel will be continued for all time. Then finally, chapters 40 to 48 describe the new community, the new Jerusalem, and the new temple, which will be established in Palestine in the future. Ezekiel was a priest. Accordingly, he was deeply concerned about the temple and temple worship, everything connected with the worship of God. He has a lofty notion of the transcendence of God and speaks of his overpowering presence in terms of glory of the Lord and his holiness. He holds the law in veneration and repeatedly accuses the people of profaning the Sabbath. That's Saturday for the Jewish people, Sabbath. Ezekiel is very conscious of the guilt of Israel. It's a point he keeps repeating, calling them for repentance, to be sorry for their sins, so that God can forgive them and restore them. And when he reviews the past history of Israel, he sees it as an unbroken series of infidelities. And the function of the prophets for a period of about four or five hundred years is to point out the infidelities of the Israelites and of the Jewish people and to call them back to fidelity to the law of God. And that's one of the main functions of the 
prophet, and that's what Ezekiel does. He's constantly referring to the sins and the guilt of the people. Ezekiel is a prophet of action, and more than any other prophet, he uses symbolic gestures to get across his message, such as building a model of Jerusalem under siege, or lying on his one side for long periods of time, cutting off his hair and shaving his beard, joining two sticks together to make one symbolizing the future union of Israel and Judah, which had been separated for hundreds of years. To a great extent, Ezekiel was a visionary. His visions bring the reader into a new and fantastic world, such as the four living creatures that he describes, of Yahweh's chariot, the dry bones in the desert that come to life. So we know the song about them bones, them bones, them dry bones in the desert, chapter 37, that God puts flesh on them and brings them back and restores them to life. This is a story of, of the resurrection. This is a kind of anticipation of the resurrection. And the mighty river that flows from the new temple in the last chapters of Ezekiel to produce a fertile land like the Garden of Eden in Genesis, with trees on both sides and uh, fruit coming from those trees constantly, you know, every month and so forth. This is a description of the divine grace that's made available to all mankind through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is symbolized by this uh, abundance of water flowing from the temple in the prophecy of Ezekiel. Ezekiel does not have much to say about the Messiah, and there are only a few references to the covenant with Moses. He repeats and develops an idea of Jeremiah when he stresses the principle of individual retribution over the collective. You have this song, the verse, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was understood to mean that when the fathers commit sin, the children are going to be punished to the third and fourth generation, as happened with David because of his sins. Ezekiel says, no, that's not going to be such anymore. Each person is going to suffer for his own sins, and the son is not going to suffer for the sins of his father. This is the principle of individual retribution over the collective. In the following prophets, this insight leads gradually to the realization that full justice and retribution will take place in the next life. This idea that if you're good in this life, you're going to be rewarded in this life, and if you're wicked, you're going to be punished in this life. Ezekiel sees that that doesn't always work out. As I mentioned before, that the wicked prosper often, and the good die young. And those who have good deeds, they die young, they don't seem to get any reward for it. So if they don't get the reward in this life, then they come to the realization there must be reward in the next life. And here you have growth of the idea of eternal life and eternal immortal life, which is developed and made explicitly by Christ in the New Testament. So in this connection, Ezekiel teaches the need for an inner conversion, putting on a new spirit and a new heart. This idea achieves its full realization then in Jesus, who is the good shepherd foretold by Ezekiel. He's the one who establishes true worship in spirit, which had been preached by Ezekiel. So remember the woman in chapter 4 in St. John's Gospel says, you know, where should we worship? Here in Samaria or in Jerusalem? 
And Jesus says that neither place in the future the man will worship in spirit and in truth. So you can worship God truthfully as he wants to be worshiped anywhere in the world. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem or Samaria or any particular place in order to offer the proper worship to Almighty God. The prophet Ezekiel then influenced Jesus' use of the term Son of Man, because all the way through Ezekiel, he's addressed by God in the oracles as Son of Man, Son of Man, constantly over and over again. And Jesus in the New Testament, this is a name for himself that he made use of, which is kind of ambiguous for the people of the times, but it avoids calling himself Messiah because they had a false understanding of the Messiah as a material and military and political leader, and Jesus was not that. He came as a redeemer, as a spiritual redeemer. So he called himself Son of Man, and it's Ezekiel all the way through is referred to as Son of Man. So this is something that's been taken over by Jesus in the New Testament. Ezekiel also influenced the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible written by St. John. Since St. John took over some of the powerful images from Ezekiel, such as the four living creatures and the chariot, a voice like the sound of many waters, Gog from the land of Magog that you have from the Old Testament and all from Ezekiel, and the prophets being carried to a high mountain. You have all of these things are repeated by St. John. So you see that the book of Revelation of the New Testament at the end of the New Testament is based and many of the images come from the prophets and from the books of the Old Testament. Finally, it should be noted that what's called apocalyptic literature, such as is found in prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, Joel, and Malachi, whom we'll deal with in the future lectures, in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation and the New Testament, it found its beginnings, the beginnings of this apocalyptic literature, and that's what the last book of the Bible is, it's called the book of Revelation, or the book of Apocalypse, it found its beginnings in the prophecy of Ezekiel, who's one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, one of the four great, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.